Thanks, love you guys. Thanks, guys, for that love. I appreciate that. That, uh, that blesses me. Uh, I love you guys, and thank you. I love you, and I've missed you guys a lot. Um, I've got an announcement to make that pertains to the church. I'm doing this on behalf of the elders and uh, my family as well. It's kind of a, a formal communication to the church. So if you're cool, I, I'm just going to read it, right? I don't have to demonstrate my oratorical skills here, right? You, you've heard me preach for years. I'm just going to read this. So bear with me. This is important for the church. And I'm also uh, speaking to our campuses in Carpentry and Ventura right now. As you know, a couple of days before Easter... My now eight-year-old daughter, Daisy, was diagnosed with cancer for the third time in as many years. Since that time, the leadership here at Reality has graciously granted me a leave of absence from my ministerial duties to allow our family the opportunity to fight for Daisy. My wife, Kate, and I are deeply grateful for the leadership's loving and generous action on our family's behalf. And we're so thankful for each of you for your continued love, support, and prayers. Thank you, Reality. In an effort to help Daisy beat cancer once and for all, my family and I will be leaving for Israel in the next couple of weeks where we will be pursuing progressive treatment not available in the U.S. for the next several months. In anticipation of my continued leave of absence from preaching here at Reality, I have suggested to the elders that they appoint Pastor Chris Lazo as the full-time interim pastor for preaching at Reality. Amen? Happily, the elders, along with you apparently have agreed unanimously and wholeheartedly to do so. It seems obvious to me that Chris is anointed and called to fulfill that role at this time. The elders and I believe his efficacy in the pulpit to be the gracious work of the Holy Spirit. And we rejoice together with you in God's provision of such while my family and I are away. We are trusting that all of you will also see God's kindness in anointing Chris as a preacher here at Reality and continue to learn from, embrace, support, highly esteem, and pray for him and his wife, Brianna, as he takes on this tremendous responsibility and they have their first child next month. Yeah, amen. That's cool, right? Additionally, and also a gift from the Holy Spirit, assigning Chris to full-time preaching duties frees up our beloved Pastor G to more effectively continue to fulfill his multitudinous responsibilities as a pastor and elder here at Reality, which include being the chief of staff, as well as fulfilling numerous shepherding and executive duties in caring for and serving all of you. Happily, he will still be preaching on occasion. In fact, I think you'll be hearing from him next week. Now, one very important point of clarification as it pertains to general leadership in the local church. As per the teaching of the New Testament, reality believes that Jesus is the only senior pastor of the church. Amen? Under Christ, 
and also according to the teaching of the New Testament, the church is led and governed by a plurality of qualified and anointed men who function as pastors and hold the office of elder. This plurality of elders provides for shared leadership, shared responsibility, and accountability, and is practiced in an atmosphere here at Reality of prayer and love and mutual respect and submission. The practice of the structure of leadership in the church, Christ as the only senior leader, and qualified, anointed, prayerful, able men serving together under him as elders, has been and continues to be the case at reality in my absence. Though it may have seemed since I've been the preaching pastor since the beginning of the church, and so the one that you've heard from and seen the most, that I was the one in charge, I have not been, nor am I. No single man is in charge at reality. That, according to our understanding of the New Testament, would be unfaithful to Scripture and Christ's intention for the local church. Reality as a local church is not led on the whole by the pastor for preaching or any other single man, but rather by the group of 13 men currently that God has called as elders here. These men are qualified, able, anointed, faithful, though sinful and imperfect, brothers who love Jesus and his church desperately and have given their lives for the mission and glory of Christ here in the coastlands. You can and should joyfully follow, obey, and submit to them as they follow, obey, and submit to Christ as the senior pastor of reality. Don't expect them to be perfect or to be everything for you or the church. You can expect Jesus to be everything for you and the church. And you can expect perfection only from Jesus. These men are fellow broken sinners, along with you, who are called by grace and only grace, and are giving their lives in response to Christ and his church. Regarding these elders, you may not be fully aware of who they are. So two things that we can do about that. One, there are always elders up front and available for you during the second set of worship. Now, not everyone up front is an elder because our prayer team, thankfully, is also up here. But elders can always be found at all three campuses up front during the second set of worship where the 13 elders are spread across the three campuses. Also, if you go to our website and find the about link at the top of the homepage, there's a drop down menu where you'll find a meet the elders link. There you'll see all the elders and have all their contact info. Also, there's a page under the about us called our ecclesiology, where we explain in writing and in detail the governance of the local church at some length. You could also call the office or email us to schedule an appointment and hear from an elder at any time. Now, I've just introduced Chris Lazo as the interim pastor for preaching, but you won't be hearing from him too much in the next month or so. 
He'll be taking time to finish his duties at Adorn, the college ministry of reality, which has had an amazing, fruitful four-year run and will be ending at the end of August. If you have questions about that, you can go to our College Ministries website where this last Friday night, Chris explained that wonderfully and in detail how the Lord is leading the elders of the church together in that decision. He'll be doing that so that he can give his full attention to the teaching and preaching duties on Sunday morning, as well as give him a chance to acclimate to fatherhood, which we should do as a church. So in August, you'll be hearing from Pastor G and some of the reality church planters. Namely, Josh Kaler from Reality Stockton, Tim Chaddock from Reality Los Angeles, and Dave Lomas from Reality San Francisco. They'll be here in August to teach us about reality's DNA as being theological, missional, and relational. What does that mean? Who are we as formed by God and Scripture, and what ought we to do as a local church? After that, in September, Chris will be back to lead us in a few weeks of discovering what it means for us here in the coastlands as one church in three locations to live fruitful, faithful, on-mission lives to the glory of Christ together. And then in October, we'll be back in Ephesians as the epistle makes its switch from talking about what God has done for us in Christ, the indicatives of the gospel, to how we can live faithfully for Christ, the imperatives of the gospel, in light of who he is and what he's done for us. And then sometime after that, after the fall, we don't know when because the full scope of Daisy's treatment in Israel is undeterminable at this point. I'll be back. And the whole church and the leadership at Reality will be asking our senior pastor, Jesus, what the next season in our church will look like together. I want to say that my wife and I love you all very much. And we're so thankful for your love and support for our family. Reality, let's continue to make it all about Jesus. Let's continue to live for his glory and his purposes in our lives, in the church, and in the coastlands. Keep your eyes on him. He loves you more than you ever dare imagine. So at this time, I want to invite up Pastor Chris Lazo and a few of our elders, and we're going to pray for Chris and commission him. And then... So... uh Let's pray together as a church. You guys can just extend your hands toward them. Jesus, we remember together and rejoice in the fact that you are the head of the church. That you are the one who loves the church. You are the one who has made the church. And that the church finds its full purpose and mission and completion and consummation in you. That you currently preside over the church universal. And this little church reality, we rejoice in calling you our senior pastor. We thank you that from time to time, by grace, in spite of us, for your glory, you anoint sinful and perfect broken men and women to do your ministry. We thank you that in this season, you've raised up our brother, Chris, to be the interim pastor for preaching. Lord, we together as a church receive him as a gift from you. And we bless him in your name. 
We ask that your anointing would continue to be upon him. Lord, we ask that you protect him from the schemes of the enemy. We would be foolish as a church not to think that the enemy would now train his sights on Chris and his wife in a new way. And we say no. We stand firm together and resist the enemy. And we hold a shield of faith over Chris and Bree. And we ask that you, Lord, as a mighty warrior on their behalf, would extinguish the fiery darts of the enemy. That they be safe and secure in you. That you hem them in on the right and the left. And as the mountains are round about Yerushalayim, you'd be round about them. You'd be his strong guard and his protector. And then this would be an incredibly fruitful season in our church. Jesus, you take us from glory to glory for your glory. You do all things for our good and your glory. So we believe that you're doing a good thing in our church. And we say thank you for it, Lord. We ask that you bless the season. You bless us together as we pursue hard after you, Lord. Thank you for what you're doing. We pray it all together for the glory of Jesus in the coastlands. Amen. Amen. Well, hi. <laughs> Enough about me. I, uh, I want to talk about you. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3, and we will talk about us through the lens of the gospel. Um, for those of you that are visiting or that are new, um, you, haven't, you haven't missed much. We've been going through Ephesians chapter 3, and I can catch you up on what we've been going through in a matter of seconds. You can turn right now to Ephesians 3, verse 12. We're wrapping up a little mini-series where we've been going through the third chapter of Ephesians, specifically looking at this little digression that Paul moves through. It's a digression as he's about to pray for the church in which he begins to unpack the mysterious gospel of Jesus Christ and for a specific reason. We saw in verse 13 that it's so that he can bring us comfort. He says, I ask you not to be discouraged. I ask you not to lose heart over my afflictions on your behalf for they are your glory against the backdrop of this gospel that he has been unraveling between verses 1 and verses 12. And so we've been looking at some of those elements. Why can I, here in Santa Barbara, Ventura, and Carpinteria, not lose heart as a Christian? Well, here's some of those reasons, and we're, we're about to wrap it up in verse 12. Let's read together what Paul says. He says that it's in him, it's in Christ that we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, I, <laughs> I've got nothing to offer this morning or for the rest of this month or the rest of this year except Jesus Christ and Christ crucified, and we, we crowd around that, that, that truth together as a church, and we say, that will be enough. I have no ideas to offer the church today. We look at your word, and we say, that will be enough. So we pray that Christ, you 
would rule and reign in your church today and for the rest of this year and for the rest of our lives. And that as we open up your word to reveal a crucified and resurrected Messiah, your word would be like warm bread falling into the mouths of hungry people. And where we are not hungry, Holy Spirit, make us hungry. Make us thirst. Cause us to be as King David in the sanctuary saying, I am in a land that is barren and yet in the sanctuary I have seen you to behold your power and your glory and your, your loving kindness. It's better than life and my lips will praise you. Stir up a, a hunger in your church on the coastlands for the king of glory. And I pray that it would not be without fruit. That you would so stir up in the hearts of your church on the coastland a hunger and a passion for your name. That we would leave these buildings in which we gather with a renewed flame, with a renewed consuming passion to go out into our context on mission to spread your name and your fame where we live and where we reside and where we play. That the world would know that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We pray this in the name of Jesus. You're the only one that can accomplish that. We look forward to it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, chapter 3. Everything that we've looked at up until this point is filled with Paul's extensive vocabulary. Look at some of the things that he says. Incalculable riches of Jesus Christ. Revealing the universe to rulers and principalities and powers. The eternal purpose of God to make a dwelling place. Using the extent of his vocabulary to try to to unravel this mysterious and almost indescribable mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And almost as an aside, he just throws out at the end, oh, and by the way, you can have access to Christ. Just, just kind of capping off this incredible, poetic piece of exhortation to the church. And it's almost as an aside that he just throws out there in verse 12. And by the way, in him we have boldness and confident, uh, confidence to, to have access to God uh, by faith in Christ. And we might be tempted after all of that poetry to think, oh, well, that's very cute. But make mo- no mistake, Paul means this to be a bombshell in the laps of rebels who do not know God. He means this sentence in verse 12 to go off like fireworks to those who have finally, for one moment, understood for the first time what the gospel actually means for people like you and me. He says in verse 8, if you remember what he said in verse 8, that this grace was given to me, uh, he was uh, to... To explain and to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of the Messiah. So Paul in verse 8, proclaiming the incalculable, indescribable riches of Jesus. And then in verse 10, these riches of Jesus by which God is revealing to the universe. What is he revealing? We see in verse 11, he's revealing the eternal purpose of God. We saw from Genesis to Revelation that the eternal purpose of God was to take a bunch of rebels and sinners and hooligans and create out of that a third race, a living building of people by which his spirit would dwell. And he tells us in verse 11 that that is finally accomplished in the death of Jesus Christ. Therefore, verse 12, in him we have access to that dwelling place. 
I'll just say it one more time. Paul is proclaiming the incalculable riches of Jesus by revealing to the universe that the eternal purpose of God uh, to make a dwelling place among rebels is finally accomplished in the death of Jesus Christ. And we, therefore, by faith in Christ, can access all of that. Now, amen. When he drops this word access, some of us, when we hear the word access, we, we filter through it, our version of whatever it is that means. Perhaps you think, when you think of access, you think of some VIP room that you get access to, or perhaps you think of the express checkout line that you have access to, or perhaps you think of having a special access to your ATM account. We think of different forms of access. Paul has one particular one in mind that has largely to do with relationship. He uses a couple words. He speaks about uh, boldness. And this word uh, means, when it first started to be used in the first century, spoke of a, a freedom of speech. The Athenians, the citizens of Athenians, would use this type of boldness to speak of a, a freedom of speech where they could speak frankly with other people. But as Paul began to use it, it began to take on this connotation of not just a, a citizen who had the ability to speak frankly, but friends who could speak with each other in each other's presence without any fear or shame. This is the, the type of word use that Paul is using in this. He uses an adjective. It's, it's not just access, it's confident access. Now, not the type of confidence that you would have if you were feeling arrogant or conceited or uh, having a, a bit of a, a high esteem, but this confidence speaks of a, a type of access that you have when you have no fear of the person you're accessing. So when Paul is speaking about boldness and confident access, he's speaking about a type of access in which you have no fear of the other person, in which you can come into that as if it were a relationship with no fear of that person being able to speak candidly and frankly as if that person were your friend. He uses that in relation to an invisible God. So if we were to unpack the meaning that Paul was speaking about when he speaks of access, it's not merely I, I have access to a, a showroom or a, a VIP uh, exclusive something or other, or I have access to my bank account. He's speaking about a living relationship in which you and I are able to approach somebody because they now find you and I approachable. We're speaking about a relationship that has changed because someone in that relationship has looked upon you with favorable approachability. Now this is only good news if you recognize how inaccessible God was to you and I to begin with. If you don't get that, then accessibility doesn't mean anything to you. For those of you that recognize that you are convicts because of your sin, accessing God is the best news that you have ever heard. And that's why Paul ends this entire section with this good news. Finally, we have access to an inaccessible God because of our, our own sins. Something has been dealt with. But it's only good news if you recognize how inaccessible God was to you. Now, if, if access, if being in the presence of God isn't the best news that you have ever, ever heard, it might be because you, you, have a, 
you have a different sense of what good news is. Perhaps for you, good news uh, might fall under the category of entitlement. You don't need access to God because you are already entitled. Or perhaps it's not entitlement, perhaps it's achievement, but it's, it's either going to be one of those two. If access to God isn't the best news that you've ever heard, it's either due to entitlement or achievement. Let's talk about entitlement for a second. When Paul, in the first chapter of Ephesians, starts dropping these bombs about predestination and election and being chosen, there would have been no doubt that every Jew in the building listening to their fellow Jews speak about these things would have been totally hip to that. Oh yeah, predestination, election, yeah, I know that. I've been hearing about that all throughout the Old Testament. Because all throughout the scriptures, they would have had this sense that their nation had been chosen by God for spiritual blessings. Look through all of the Old Testament, through the First Testament, and you'll see Israelites glorying and joying in the fact that their tribe has been chosen by God. And Paul, in letters like Romans chapter 9, And in Ephesians chapter 1 and in Romans chapter 2 would drop a bomb in the lap of every person listening in the first century saying, it's more than just your nation being chosen. He would say in Romans chapter 9 verse 8, you are not a child of Abraham by physical descent. You are a child of Abraham by spiritual descent only. It's the same thing that Jesus would say in John, in the gospel of John to Nicodemus. He would say, dude, you... You've got this pedigree, you've got all of this theology, you've been born into the right tribe, you're an Israelite, you've been doing all the right Christian things, but that doesn't get you into the kingdom of God. You must be born again. You remember Nicodemus' reply, well, how do I get born again? Do I got to crawl back into my mother's, it doesn't make any sense. Jesus said it doesn't make any sense to those who have not been born of the Spirit. You must be born of spiritual descent into the family of Abraham. And so there's this sense that the Israelites were grandfathered into a faith. All they had to do was be born into the right family at the right time. And so are many of us in this room, are we not? I've come from a Christian family, therefore I am a Christian. I've been going to church faithfully my entire life. Therefore, I am a Christian. My mom used to say, you can sit on the floor of your garage all you want. It doesn't make you a car. (laughs) Going to church does not make one a Christian. You must be reborn. The prophet Ezekiel would say in Ezekiel chapter 18 verse 20, a son won't suffer punishment for the father's iniquity. And a father won't suffer punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous person will be on him and the wickedness of the wicked person will be on him. Meaning everybody will be held accountable for what they chose to do about God. And so you say, well, I guess entitlement is out the window. I'm not entitled to anything. We immediately default to achievement. If I'm not entitled to anything, I will try to do my best. And this is the prevailing worldview of the world that you and I live in all the time. Just try harder. Just do better. Just be a better Christian. If you're not entitled to the promises of God, then work for them. And this pervades almost every single thought that humanity has. If I try harder, 
I will satisfy God, and in doing so, I myself will be satisfied. And look at what that touches. Oh, I am not satisfied, so I need to look for it in the perfect community. Community will make me satisfied. Oh, you know what? No, I need, I need the perfect relationship. If I can find and craft and create the perfect relationship and find the perfect spouse, my entire life will be a dream. No, it's through legislation. All of our problems will go away through the right re- legislation. Someone else would say, no, it's through revolution. That's how we'll find satisfaction. Others would say, alcohol is what, f- uh, what offers me uh, uh, satisfaction. Others would say, no, it's, it's education and pedigree. That's what I will achieve in order to find eternal happiness. Someone else would say, no, it's money. If I can just make 40000 a year, then I'll be happy. You make $40,000 a year and you say, no, if I can make 50000 oh, my rent just went up. But if I can make 60000 and the boat keeps going and going, someone else would say, no, it's religion. If I can just find the right set of rules and be a part of the right set of people at the right church in the right place at the right time and know all of the right passages of scripture, I will find satisfaction. No, it's my career. If I can just find my dream job, everything will be fine. Someone else would say, no, it's my children. My children will live the life that I always wanted to live. And in them, I will vicariously find satisfaction. It doesn't really matter how you paint it. What facet it is, whether it's children, legislation, revolution, relationship, community, rules. The stories are all very typical. And they will all fail you and crush you under the weight of your own expectation. It goes a lot farther than that because the whole of Scripture actually declares that you can't achieve anything in this life to impress God or to fix yourself. The prophet Isaiah would say in Isaiah chapter 64 verse 6 that the best deeds that you have ever accomplished in this life are like a filthy garment. Meaning that you, your good works are simply not good enough whether you have inherited them or you have worked hard for them. You might say, well, wait a minute. My good deeds are like filthy rags. What about that time I helped that lady across the street? Like you're saying that's bad? I've done a lot of good in society. I've helped people. You're saying that's bad? You're calling good things bad? And what the prophet Isaiah is saying that by comparison to a holy God who is not blemished with sin, the best that we can accomplish in comparison to his righteousness looks like filth. It doesn't mean we're not capable of doing good things. We are. You guys do great things. It means that there's not enough good in our good things to impress a God who is completely good. And as some of us may show up to church and wonder and say, do do I love God with all of my heart? Well, sure I do. And we think of love as something that's sentimental. Well, I, I like the idea of God. You know, I appreciate God. The world needs a God, and I'm down with that. Therefore, I'm a Christian. I like God. John would say in 1 John 2, verse 3, this is how we can be sure that we have come to know him, that we follow his commands. And so, the law of God, every command in Scripture that God gives us to follow him, becomes A standard of God's holiness that looks at people and judges whether our good works display an actual love for God. 
And for every time that Chris Lazo has messed something up in life, it screams in my face, I have proven that I do not love God with the life that I live. I have proven that I cannot show or give by example or strive hard enough to impress a God who is completely holy. And so it becomes very strange when we argue with God and say, well, God, I'm, I'm not a bad person, and I do love you, and I can prove it by these good things that I've done. I want you to imagine for a second that somebody committed an atrocity against one of your loved ones. And immediately in the aftermath, without a care in the world, without a single concern for your well-being or that person's, just walked up to you and wanted to pave it over by giving you a $25 gift card. I'm so sorry for offending your entire family and existence and the fact that I, I actually hate you and you smell. But you know what? Here's a $25 gift card to Applebee's. Maybe that'll pave things over. That's our good works. God, I know that you are completely holy, and I know I have not lived up to that standard, even though I've done a couple good things along the way. But you know what? I mean, it's all right, right? Here's a $25 gift card to Applebee's, God. Like, uh, we're good, right? That fixes everything. Some would say, well, I can see that I am not perfect. This much is clear. I don't know anyone that would admit to themselves that I've, I've never made a mistake in my life. But some of us would say, but I'm not as bad as you could possibly be. You know, I, I've never killed anybody. I've never committed adultery. I've never done the, the bad stuff. So I, I know that I have sinned, but isn't God a God of love? Isn't he one that based on his loving attributes would be like my grandpa used to be. Just would like pat me on the head when I did something wrong and just like sweep it under the rug and give me a lollipop or something. Like God is a God of love. Like can't he just let some of this slide? And the problem with that is that God is not your grandpa. If anything, a better analogy to use would be that of a righteous judge, which we see popping up all over the scriptures. And this is something that most of us actually long for. We long for a sense of justice and morality in this world. And when we don't see it accomplished, we blame who? God. The biggest objection to Christianity these days is that how can there be all of this evil in existence and this supposedly holy God who is one of justice? It does not make sense to most people that there could exist evil and a God who is a God of justice. Now, how do we answer that? Well, first of all, we have to come to some place and agree that that standard of morality had to come from somewhere. Are we saying that we are the standard of morality and justice? Of course not. We're the ones that are often doing the things that are unjust to other people. We don't love perfectly. And so that is our hero. That is our knight in shining armor. That somewhere out there, outside of all of this mess and chaos, there is a supernatural being that does not mess up. And has a standard by which he holds to. And none of us would ever be okay with a human judge looking at a criminal that has committed atrocities and being like, you know what? That's all right. Just, just get out of here. That's not a big deal. We would scream at the top of our lungs as we often have. The thing is, we don't hate justice. We love it when it's being shown to everybody else. But when we're on the podium... 
We love mercy. And that's a problem. We love justice and we love mercy. And it's a problem for us when we happen to be sinners because we want mercy and we deserve justice. So how do those two things reconcile when the object of both is a group of people that prove by their actions that they don't follow God? Austrian philosopher by the name of Ivan once commented that neither revolution nor reformation can ultimately change a society. Rather, you must tell a new powerful tale, one so persuasive that it sweeps away the old myths and becomes the preferred story. A story that is so inclusive that it gathers all the bits of our past and our present into a coherent whole. One that even shines some light into the future so that we can take the next step. If you want to change a messed up society, then you have to tell an alternative story. See, our problem is we keep going back to the old story. We default to, we're a mess, we need to get better, so I will try harder. I will be a better Christian. I will impress God and my fellow man. We default to an old, tired story that never fixes anybody. We need a better story. And we find a better story in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul would allude to this in Romans chapter 3, in verse 21, where he would say, I've got a good story for you, and it comes apart from the law. The law is, was good. It, it was useful to show us our need for a savior. But God's righteousness, a better story, is now being revealed. He would say in verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but here it is, they are justified, meaning they are accepted, meaning someone is able to uh, cast a, a favorable light on them, meaning someone finds you lovable because of what? Freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, verse 25. And God, how is that even possible, by the way? How can sinners who sin against God be looked at by God and be loved and be purely accepted and be desired, he tells us in verse 24. Those sinners are justified, or excuse me, verse 25. It's because God presented Jesus as a propitiation through faith in his blood to demonstrate his righteousness. Propitiation, a word we never use to describe anything. This is what it means. It means you have come up with a sacrifice that satisfies the other party. It doesn't just mean that your sins have been swept under the rug. It means that you have traded places with somebody. It means, in this case, that Christ Jesus has taken, out of his great love for you, has taken everything bad that you have done in this life, and he has taken it off of you by your faith in him and placed it upon himself. And he doesn't just do that. He doesn't just wipe away your sins. He exchanges his righteous resume with everything that you have done that has been wrong in this life, and he switches places with you so that you, by your faith, are able to stand in the presence of God with the resume of Jesus Christ and say, I belong here. I have been accepted by you, by your son. And you know what happens to Jesus? He takes everything that you have done against him and he nails it to the cross. And God, in all of his justice, like a cannon of wrath, points everything that you and I deserved, pours it out upon his son, the son of God, trades places with rebels.
Some of you would say that is the most barbaric thing I have ever heard. That is so archaic. How does that fix anything? How would we ever do something like that to another person? Why would we ever think that that is even necessary? Well, think about it in family terms. How many of you fathers, if you had a daughter or a young son who was going through something that was painful, maybe they broke an arm or broke a bone or were plagued with sickness, how many of you fathers in your strength and in your love would, would, would wish to trade places with your kids so that they would not have to suffer? How many of you would say, I would much rather be in the place of pain than my kid? I would rather take on that broken bone. I would rather take on that flu than to watch my son or my daughter go through that. And how many of us are unable to do that? And yet God in his mercy says, I can trade places with rebels because of my great love for them. And in the gospel, pardons people who hated them and takes the fall for you and I. The mystery of the gospel is that we are not just broken people. We don't just have a few screws loose. We're not just good people with good intentions that sometimes veer off to the left and to the right. If we're really honest, based upon our selfish motives, we are rebels. The Bible declares that humanity is a group of rebels, dissidents that want nothing to do with God. And even when we do the things that he tells us to do, it is for some ulterior self-centered motive. And God dies for those people. And the mystery of the gospel is that you and I are worse than we ever thought possible. Yet by putting our faith in Jesus Christ, we are more loved than we ever imagined. And God loved you and I in this way that he gave his precious son who went willingly. Jesus said, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. I have the power to lay it down and the power to rise it up again. And he goes to the cross for the joy set before him and he takes your fall and my fall. And we're told in Romans chapter 5 and in Ephesians chapter 3 that in doing so, in that trade-off, when you put your faith in Christ, he is able to declare sinners to be righteous and accepted and wholly loved and approachable by God. And in doing so, you and I have access to a God who we never could touch. Paul goes on to say in verse 12, in him we have boldness and confident access. And he says the medium through that is through faith in him. Faith means we still can't do anything. There's nothing involved in faith in which we have to muster up. I love how A.W. Tozer explained faith. He said faith is just the gaze of the soul upon a saving God. It is you and I recognizing where we came from and recognizing who God is and in awe and wonder falling to our our knees and saying, may everything that you have done be true of me. I have nothing to bring to the table, but you have brought everything to the table and I want to eat from that feast for the rest of my life. Wonderful thing happens to a person that has put their faith in Jesus Christ. The law that you and I hated because we wanted to follow our own dreams and follow our own self-centered ambitions and 
make a name for ourselves, the very law, the commands of God that we hated and had a hard time following. As soon as Christ begins to transform the human heart, we are born again inside. Something starts to happen. And you know that you're saved because for the first moment in your life, you begin to love the commands of God. King David wrote the longest chapter in the entire Bible. You know what it is about? I, I can't get enough of the commandments of God. The commands of God are an expression of who God is. And so in doing so, in falling in step with what God tells us to do, being on mission with him, uh, hating our sin, doing the things that he has told us to walk in, we are declaring, I love everything about the law. I love how it expresses God, and I want that to be formed in me. I have lived my entire life for something lesser, and I'm sick of it. And in my faith, I want to train the gaze of my soul upon a beautiful God. Brothers and sisters, you know you're at that point when you've come to a place where you realize that everything you've ever done, everything that you've ever worked for in this life is insufficient to satisfy the deep longing of your heart. And in that moment, I want to call upon you to drop it. And in childlike faith, turn to Christ as your Savior, as your Lord, as your hero, as your champion, as a protagonist, as the main character, as the author, as the finisher. Leave everything that you have ever strived for at the foot of the cross and turn the gaze of your eyes upon a saving God who loves you and gave himself up for you. And that is where true change will happen. And let it be said of reality that we have not followed Christ into a garage, laying on the floor of a garage trying to pretend to be Christians, but that we have been transformed by a better story. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, I ask that in this building and in our warehouses and in our places of gathering in Santa Barbara and Carpinteria and in Ventura that you would do that wonderful thing that you have been doing for years and years and years putting yourself on display among people who do not deserve you and God I pray that something transformative would take a grip in our hearts that because of the spilt blood of Jesus Christ because of the righteousness that you have attributed to us by faith, we can now step boldly and access our Father in heaven. And for the first time, maybe for some of us, be able to say, we now deserve the presence of God, but not by anything that we have done, but by what Christ has done on our behalf. God, I pray that this morning you would save us from religious nonsense. You would save us from trying to impress you and to impress ourselves. And I pray that you would drop us to our knees in humble gratitude that there is a God who exists and that God loves us so much that he sent his son. Lord, please do not let this church become so familiar with the gospel that we find ourselves being enticed by religiosity. Continue to bring us back to the treasure of knowing you at the foot of the cross. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, perhaps some of you in this room do not know Jesus Christ in that way. For you, it's easy. 
You got to look at your life and say, I am the rebel that the, the, the scriptures declared me to be, and I'm sick of rebelling. Repent of your sins and decide in your heart that you will follow Christ for the rest of your life and never look back. For you Christians that have been faithfully walking for 80 years, you can continue, as A.W. Tozer said, to fix the gaze of your soul upon a saving God and be in that place for the rest of your life. You will never, ever really grow familiar with the depths of the gospel. Paul never did. For those of you that are living in an easy believism, you are living simply because it's something to do or it's something that makes you feel secure about yourself. Drop your security at the door. Your security will only come in Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. But whatever we do in this building, let it be said that we had nothing to bring to the table, but we have found a better champion and we have found a better hero. And now as we gather as a church, let's worship that hero who writes for us a better story. In Jesus' name.